0: Oh my God, protein, everybody's freaked out, obsessed about protein. Who's the most freaked out about it is athletes and performance. And that's a whole nother set of outcomes. Uh, I have tried for years to work with some of the Stanford varsity teams and the coaches will not let me, these are my players. You stay away from them. I'm you and your vegetables and your protein and your whatever, I don't know. I pretty much looked at what Larry Apple and Frank Sachs wrote and I said, okay, so I'm not gonna tell you exactly what it was because we, ju- we matched those things and the rest, they said that in the New England Journal of Medicine, so I get to say it over here when we publish this one. I had some ants got in my scopey one time, A couple of ants, like I opened it up. I don't know how they got in there.
1: It was gone, it was shot. Today's episode is with Professor Christopher Gardner. Dr. Gardner is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. His primary research focus for the past decade has been randomized controlled nutrition intervention trials, testing the effects of various nutrition interventions on chronic disease risk factors, including blood cholesterol, body weight, inflammatory markers, and the microbiome. Before we get into this episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated, and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Professor Christopher Gardner. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker. Is they make the process super convenient you can organize their phlebotomist a person who draws blood to come to your house or office to do the blood draw a few days later your results show up in the inside tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal or optimal i've checked inside trackers lifestyle recommendations specifically the exercise and nutrition ones and i can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash simon. For this exclusive offer, that's InsightTracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter a meal. is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, Taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends.
0: Uh, actually, that's one of my favorite stories from an old study I did. Uh, I, we did two low-fat diets, and one was convenience food and one was um, whole foods. Let me see, let me make sure this is the right study. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the right study. Anyway, at the end of the day, we told them what the purpose was and everything, and we sort of broke the blind because it was real food. It was all real food, kind of like Kevin Hall does. And this one guy, I remember him, before we broke the blind, he said, this is amazing. Like I have had this pain in my leg that has gone away. Dude, my sex drive is up and my hair is like flourishing like it never has before. I said, "Dude, you're in the control group." And he said, "Oh shit." <laughs> please don't please don't tell anyone I said that. Oh god, I'm mortified now. Okay, never mind, never mind.
1: Wow. There you go. But he just How many
0: studies have you done now? Thought. I don't know, twenty or twenty-five.
1: Twenty or twenty-five humans. Stop counting. Clinical trials.
0: Human intervention. Busy man. Randomize them.
1: This is our fifth conversation. Wow. I know. I'm glad that we're we're finally doing it in person. I get to see you live. Yeah. Right. I think previously we've we had a dedicated episode to low carb versus high carb diet fits. That was the first one we did. Uh huh. And then we did the fermented foods, fiber, microbiome one with. Um, Justin. Justin Sonnenberg, your colleague at Stanford. We had the episode on plant-based meat versus oh, organic yeah. meat, the swap meat trial, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. we'll probably build on today.
0: Okay, good.
1: And then we had the the fantastic protein debate. The debate that a wasn't stash, a debate. Yeah, <laughs> With uh, Professor Stuart Phillips.
0: That wasn't as debatey as yeah. we thought.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming down today to do it's this.
0: Thrilled to be here. This looks like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I think- Maybe, perhaps by the end of today, and then tomorrow you're sitting down with Rich Roll. You might be a little worn out on the flight home.
0: I love talking about this. I'm ready.
1: <laughs> right. I was. I was impressed as I was reading everything that you've been up to. So we've we've explored so much. But even since the last conversation we had, you've you seem to have published more studies. There's huh. studies on athletes. There's studies on interesting ways to get people to eat more vegetables. Yeah. There's uh the AHA position statement they Diet brought patterns, out on yes, dietary patterns yeah super proud of that yeah and this morning I was chatting with Nimai Delgado oh and he the vegan twin study he brought up uh, <laughs> that he he was involved in some capacity with this vegan twin study with you that um correct me correct me if I'm wrong but it may be turned into like a documentary
0: Oh yeah, it's going to be a four-part Netflix docu series.
1: Is this top secret, or or is this something that you can?
0: Yeah, I can't. I can't say what we found, but I can tell you maybe the design, which was really yeah. clever.
1: Yeah, tell us about the the kind of study design and the inspiration behind that.
0: Well, I I kind of have to. Yeah, and it's kind of a fun story. So it, I'm going to jump ahead, then I'm going to go backwards. code jumping ahead. Uh, film producer for Game Changers. Louis is the director's name and his group, Ocean Preserving Ocean something, said, uh, boy, we have this idea. We're really interested in the microbiome and twins, identical twins. How would you like to, uh, we actually have some money from Netflix to do this. And we have a donor who would pay for the study who's just really into animal rights and welfare and do something that was vegan. And so they approached us and we said yes. And we were months into it. And it was actually a very tight schedule to make this Netflix deadline, timeline. It'll come out. In theory, first week of January, 2024, yeah. Um, Months into it, one of the staff members said, oh my God, you have to see this video. And I looked and it was two identical twins who got randomized, one to omnivore and one to- British guys? Yeah, British guys, actually not randomized. I shouldn't have said that because they weren't. Anyway, two guys and it said they're from a study and they were athletes and they tracked themselves and they showed what happened to their blood and everything. And said, Oh my God, I know what this is. This is Tim Spector's study. This is from the UK identical twin study. The guy that I work with in Zoe. Oh my God, it's already been done. Oh, I'm, I'm, I think I better tell the director it's already been done. And so I sort of sheepishly said, damn, we are way into this. I'm going to have to call the guy up. And I said, Louie, we saw this other thing and they said, oh yeah, no, that's where I got the idea. I saw the video. <laughs> it was one step It was ahead. only two guys. It wasn't a yeah. study. It was two guys who were in Tim Spector's identical twin study, but they just did it on their own. Interesting. It was like a media stunt or something. And it, yeah. they made a video out of it. But at one point they said from the study. So I thought, okay. oh, somebody else did this already. But it was really fun. We worked with identical twins. How many twins? Which are who? 22 pairs of identical twins. Wow and they get randomized to stay omnivore or go vegan. And the really funny thing is we had this uh, reveal, the big reveal, like which one do you get? And they clearly had strong opinions one way or the other, like somebody didn't want to and somebody did. And it was quite mixed.
1: Right, so you you filmed their, their reaction. Yeah, that. like really half of them
0: <laughs> wanted to try vegan and half of them really did not. And they were relieved when they got omnivore, right. so.
1: I wonder how that sort of preconceived belief Plays into their success or lack of success and maybe the outcomes
0: yes I actually think it's really important and we didn't couldn't test it that way you'd what have, outcomes were you interested you'd have to have more in measuring everything under the Sun so we did a standard cardiometabolic panel but we did things like telomeres and biological clocks uh, there's some dual energy x-ray absorbed geometry in there for bone and lean and fat mass and things like that so Actually, the postdocs are submitting it probably next week. So okay, can't say anymore. But it was pretty right. fun. And right. So
1: it's not just a Netflix documentary; it's it's a peer reviewed paper. It's what? a real
0: study. Yeah. And poop. We have a lot of bio- We have a lot of uh, microbiome, immune function things. Yeah. Fun. We look smattering of everything.
1: And, and what. What kind of people were these sets of twins? Were they like in their 20s, 30s, 40s? Were they active, sedentary?
0: Yeah, all ranges. So we had a very uh, young athletic pair. We had a very, uh, an older athletic pair. We had some very sedentary people. Uh, it was really a mix. And they were, how oh, old was the youngest? Maybe 20 and maybe as old as 65. So no, yeah, very very loose inclusion criteria. Anybody who wasn't sick. So some of them were a lot healthier than others, but nobody was outright sick. Okay,
1: I think I can probably guess some of the results, but I, I, I imagine we'll probably, we'll need to get you back on.
0: Um, I'll be ready for another one. Yeah, that one will be a lot of fun.
1: There'll be a lot of people interested in, in those results. Last, uh, or a couple episodes ago, we spoke about the swap meat trial. And I believe that recently you've sort of, um, Done a follow-up study a similar study to that but with athletes perhaps if someone has didn't tune into the swap Meat trial episode we did we okay. could start with just a higher level what that was yeah. and what the main takeaways were from that
0: and i'll even go back to when i sort of got the idea i was opening the new york times three different times there's this full page ad like slamming all the new plant based meat saying these things are dog food these things are crap these think i can't believe people are eating them uh, maybe they're good for the environment, but they're full of uh, coconut oil for the saturated fat. They're high in sodium and they're ultra processed. So your cholesterol's going up, your blood pressure's going up and your weight's going up. And I thought, that's my superpower. I, I do that kind of study. That wouldn't really be that hard. I could give people a couple servings a day of plant meat and a couple servings a day of red meat fact, I bet we could deliver that. I'm not going to do the feeding study that Kavanaugh does. I'm not going to incarcerate them or domicile them. But yeah, so for now I have to remember there's different studies, do different things. This is eight weeks each. It's a crossover. So everybody did both things. And this is before the pandemic or after? Before. We finished this one before the pandemic. So I think we enrolled 40 and 36 finished. So we have good retention. And LDL cholesterol went down, not up. And that was pretty easy to predict because yes, coconut uh, fat is saturated, but there was less saturated fat in the plant-based alternative Maybe a little
1: bit more fiber or was the fiber match? Oh
0: no, and it was, no, it wasn't fiber match. All we did was swap out the meat. Everything else was intended to be the same. And okay, just a little side note to address that comment would be, we said, you know, you're on your own for the rest. We're not buying you the rest of the food, but we do want to say that if it's the burger, and you're having a white bun, and we don't want you to have a white bun, but if you have a white bun in one phase, you need to have it in both phases. And if you put on uh, uh, iceberg lettuce on one, you gotta put iceberg lettuce on both. But if you put the whole grain organic foofy bun on one, you gotta put it on both. And if you have the farmer's market lettuce and tomato on one burger, you gotta have it on both.
1: That kind of ties into one of your principles, which I think is, Compared to what, and with what, or something like that. Yeah,
0: uh huh. <laughs> Instead of what and with what, so you got to make sure those are. And this is the other thing that's that's big for me in the studies I do is matching versus mismatching. So go back to nutrition and just pills. It's really easy. You have to change your diet. As soon as you have to start changing your, your diet, how much do you change? And do you ask, uh, and do you set it up so that one? Group does get the iceberg lettuce and the crappy cardboard tomatoes and the other one gets the nice stuff. I really try to make it so both groups have the optimal. So in swap meat, the red meat we got was from a San Francisco delivery company that did organic and regenerative and all all those nice things. So
1: And that's important because you probably otherwise would have got pushback on that.
0: Yeah. and And important to me. I want to do good science. I don't want to have Yeah, the crappy diet versus I want, okay, if you're really curious if these two things work head to head, you should pick the best of each one. So when we did, LDL cholesterol went down, not up. Blood pressure didn't change. So let's just do the sodium really quickly. So yes, the um, Beyond Meat burgers have more sodium than ground beef. But guess what? When people get ground beef, they salt it. And so by the time you looked at it at the end, the sodium intake was identical in the two groups and the blood pressure didn't change. We also looked at TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which is, uh, if you're on Twitter, you'll see it's a little controversial. Some people think it's a very cool emerging new risk factor that Stan Hazen from the Cleveland Clinic identified about a decade ago. I'm very much involved with the American Heart Association for the last decade. When you go to the annual American Heart Conference, there's always a TMAO session because people are really intrigued by TMAO. There's a bunch of people that don't like it at all, but... That was our primary outcome. And it went down in the um, Beyond Meat Eaters. Why do some people not like it as a a risk factor? So they, they think it's not well established enough. So picture finding these things out. Like if you looked at the history of cholesterol, let's say there was total cholesterol. Then there was LDL and HDL. Then the HDLs got split into small dense particles and large puffy fluffy particles. And so in this process, TMAO, is pretty new. Um, so it's plausible, but nobody's done a randomized controlled trial to see if you live or die, which is a huge frustration for me because most most of the really good questions in nutrition, you can't do a randomized controlled trial. It would take too long. Mm-hmm. If, if you're hoping to keep somebody out of the hospital. So if your outcome is lipids or blood pressure or TMAO, I can do that in a month or two or three. Um, but if you really wanna see if this is saving someone from a heart attack.
1: Yeah, like a hard, hard outcome. You have
0: to have a hard, hard clinical outcome, Mm. costing money, costing lives. Mm. You have to go on-
1: Like or something.
0: Yeah, and those are bazillions of dollars and and decades of time to run them. And then you only get to ask one question too. So you you have to be very specific about the population, the dose, the duration, things like that. So when you're all done, At the end of the day, he said, ha, and actually you could do this with Swapmeet easily. Ha, it worked. Yeah, but how about half as much? How about twice as much? How about longer? said, well, I I didn't do that one. I guess I gotta do it all over again. I can't possibly answer. Well, that's
1: another reason to get some more grant money.
0: Yeah, right, and so if I'm clever, I can write the grant and get it to work and then do the follow-up study. So anyway, basically that was Swapmeet, the things that they got trashed for in the newspaper of getting worse didn't they even lost weight, not much weight, but they lost pretty much on average, they lost a pound or two, which normally, I don't know how statistically sophisticated you wanna be here, but clinically a pound or two is not very relevant, but it was fascinating. Almost everyone lost a pound or two. And so if it's very consistent, it can still be statistically significant, even though it's not clinically relevant, but i kind of liked it because the story was, oh, because of Kevin Hall's study, they're gonna gain weight of the saturated fat their cholesterol go up because of the sodium the blood pressure will go up none of those things happen and tmao went down so it was a win for the plant-based meat if the question is instead of what instead of red meat right
1: not instead of legumes
0: instead of legumes. people said yeah but are you saying they should eat these instead of lentil no <laughs> that's not how i designed it that's not the interesting question mm-hmm very
1: frustrating. I think I recall you saying that early on in the piece, maybe it was years before, when you came across Beyond Burger, you you were not a a real advocate for these foods at the beginning.
0: Yeah, I wasn't, yeah, I'm a lentil man. I want chickpeas and lentils and whole foods. I'm definitely a whole food person. Uh, And yet soberingly, yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years. And it's amazing how little I've accomplished. Um, I've published these studies and I I have a real fun story that I tell mocking myself where I did one study that worked and that people weren't gonna do it because it involved cooking and shopping. So even though I spent all this money and time, they said, great for science, I'm not changing. And then I did another study with real garlic and garlic pills. I was trying to lower cholesterol. Four years, $1.4 million. Nothing worked, nothing lowered the cholesterol, not the pills or the real garlic from Gilroy. And I presented the results and a couple of people came up after and said, so where do you get the pills? <laughs> and I said, why? They said, well, we want to get them. I said, I just spent four years of my life showing you it doesn't work. And I said, no, we think it works for us. Mm-hmm. And so for this whole red meat thing, especially now that I've been much more into the environment than the past, I've been saying, yes, there's all kinds of health and environmental reasons to eat less red meat, and that doesn't make much of a dent for a whole lot of people. So I became much more open-minded to, ah, I get it. These guys are trying to make something that looks, smells, tastes, everything is the same. At one level that bothers me, but I'm watching some people switch. They're willing to make a dent. And so, yep, I think there's like a hundred answers that we need, and this isn't the answer, but it, it's one option that I like having out there.
1: I think you're selling yourself a little bit short when you talk about impact of your research. Okay. I think we'll we'll hopefully we'll get to some of the work that you're doing at the community level, because okay. I think some of that stands to be extremely impactful and and hopefully acts as a bit of a blueprint for for other sort of cities and and um, researchers to think about I'm, I'm referring to the health matters stuff that you're you're doing oh thanks um you mentioned you're so you're a lentil man but you're also a kombucha man
0: ah i've got kombucha <laughs> right there
1: i i before we started recording you i asked you if you wanted water and you said no i've got my kombucha I've got my boots right usually you make it and yeah. dave here who's who's filming with us he was interested in what that looks like what's the process to make kombucha? Yeah,
0: you want a quickie? So Dave, you gotta, um, <laughs> my wife's tired of me buying the bottles and throwing them away just from like an environmental perspective. And said, you know, your friend, Justin Sonnenberg, he makes his own kombucha. Why don't you just ask him for some SCOBY? But she actually got, went online, and I, I can't remember if this is the name, but it's like, it's obvious, kombucha kit. And what you get is this big four gallon, four, not four gallon, but like, anyway, a gallon, huge big gallon jar, maybe it's a 2 gallon jar. And you get this scoby. This is the magical thing, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. It's all about the scoby. Okay, so here's what I do. It takes 20 minutes um once a week to make this. So I'm going to have to start cuz I already being in the process, but you see you have to do it once first to get in the process. In fact, did I make it last night? I might have. So I went and I got six empty bottles, these Grolsch bottles, the ones with the wire cap that snap shut. Um, and I got my fermented thing that had been there for a week soaking. And I took out the scoby with my hand and I stuck it to the side. And I got my little teaspoons and I have some, what do I have at home? Pomegranate molasses, uh, some blue, blueberry extract, some cherry extract, some mango extract. I made my own raspberry extract. One day, and for each of those little bottles, I put in two teaspoons of some kind of flavoring. For Christmas, you could do cinnamon and cloves and something. Then I pour off this gallon thing or whatever it is, because it makes uh, six 16 ounce bottles. And all I do is after I pour the flavoring in there, I pour the kombucha in and I cap it, I put it aside, and a week later, it is drinkable. Okay, now. What do I do while I was doing that? I get a big pot of water. I boil four cups of water and I get four tablespoons of tea in sort of this big ass uh, tea bag that I have. And what I put Earl Grey. I have this cool pomegranate oolong tea and I had a pear and something interesting tea. So you can mess with the tea. You can change whatever tea you want. Have you ever written this down? Uh, No. It's, it's not that hard. Just put tea in there. <laughs> You're supposed to, like the people who really do it, keep a record of what tea they used each time. <laughs> I, just, soils. I just throw some tea in. Yeah. Just put some tea in the water. And so it's boiling while I'm filling the bottles. And then when I'm done, I take the tea out, pour a cup of sugar in, let it cool, pour it back in the big bottle, fill the bottle of water, take the scoby out and plunk it back in and leave it for a week. It takes me 20 minutes. Easy as a- 20 minutes so and once you have once you once you have it down and you got the bottles there i have a little funnel to pour things with i know where my tablespoon and my teaspoon are there's not really much equipment you just got to make sure you you love your scoby and don't wreck it i had some ants got in my scoby one time a couple of ants like i opened it up i don't know how they got in there it was gone it was shot like And I had not been that gentle with it before, like I grab it with my hand, I stick it on a bowl and I stick it back. But a couple ants, I think, ruined the whole thing.
1: I know Dr. B also is a big fan of making his own kombucha. Yeah, (laughs) and so is Justin Sonnenberg. There you go.
0: Yeah, it's really not hard. And you get to play with the tea or the flavorings. And so really take one quick step back. It's a week in the jar and it's a week in the bottles, and then it's drinkable.
1: Right, and it's beneficial for the microbes.
0: Yeah, and it's full of microbes. Yeah, and I have a bottle every day. But today I traveled, and so I got some booch down the street on the way here.
1: Staying hydrated with booch. Yeah. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test apob levels fortunately this has now been made easier by inside tracker a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging genetics and biometric data from harvard mit and tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results with the new edition of apob Get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey, friends. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So back to swap Swapmate. So, okay. so the first trial, you conducted that, You looked at cholesterol and tmao and all that sort of stuff and then you decided to do a follow-up study
0: yeah because the protein thing oh my god protein everybody's freaked out obsessed about protein who's the most freaked out about it is athletes and performance and that's a whole nother set of outcomes and so i also because of the feedback i got from the first study i wanted a third arm And the third arm was vegan. So why not do a red meat omnivorous diet and then replace the red meat with a plant-based meat? Don't replace it at all. Just have vegan. And so we got these uh, 22 grad students. Uh, It actually was during the pandemic. It was supposed to be with undergrads in the dining halls during the school year. And it was going to be somebody's master's degree, Aubrey Roberts, who wrote the papers, First author. She's published it. So she said, oh, you're screwed. Um, There's a pandemic. So dining halls are closed. (gasps) Let's try grad students. And the fun part about this, Simon, was uh, I have tried for years to work with some of the Stanford varsity teams. And the coaches will not let me touch them. These are my players. You stay away from them. I'm you and your vegetables and your protein and your whatever. I don't know. Not letting me mess with their teams, but recreational athletes on a college campus, there's tons of folks who've been lifting or running, forever, not even competing, they just to stay in shape. Thought, wow, it's a great generalizable population. So we put out an ad, and picture this there's three arms. And so one of the things you want to do is balance which order they get them in. So there's six orders if there's three arms ABC. Oh, so everyone did all three ACB, diets. it's a crossover.
1: So each person BC, acts as their own BC. control.
0: And that's why I think the recruitment was fun, because these were people who were curious, right? I wonder, yeah. I wonder if my performance would change. I kind of I thought about this once in a while, but I thought, I don't really want to impair my performance, and there's a chance it will, so I guess I'm not going to try that. But what if this is just four weeks, each of those?
1: So those three diets, just to be clear, one, of those diets was omnivorous with meat products. This next was still an omnivorous diet, but swap out some meat for plant-based meat alternatives.
0: Uh, not, um, no, it's was pretty much vegan. Okay. Uh, oh, let's say vegetarian, not vegan. Right. So you could have dairy. So
1: there's which- two sort of very plant-based diets in this study. One yeah. had plant-based meat alternatives. The other yeah. was more of a whole food purist vegan diet. Yeah. That's the differences. Yeah. Okay, cool. And. So everyone had the opportunity of doing each of those for four weeks, uh-huh. different orders. Uh-huh. And what were you interested in kind of measuring? Given they were athletes, I'm, I'm assuming, we yeah. were looking at performance.
0: Yeah, and, th- and this is easy because for runners, it's time. And so it turned out that the master student who was running this was a runner. And she said, ah, oh, there's this 12-minute timed run. It's the classic among runners. And so you just see how far you can go And we bought them all Garmin watches. Do you have one of those? I don't have a Garmin watch. No,
1: I'm using a Whoop, but I don't have a Garmin watch.
0: It's a fancy thing, right? But I know a lot of runners have them. I've never had uh, them, right. So it's good for, and you can get heart rate out of this and you can get some other factors. Anyway, you can get distance. And so it was a 12-minute timed run. And the idea was uh, you would, at the end of four weeks, you had to time yourself, but you'd also be timing yourself throughout. You're supposed to, you had to be working out three or four times a week. So if you're a runner, whatever your usual running thing is, if you're a marathon runner, if you're a sprinter, didn't matter. I mean, most of these were just joggers. And then for weightlifters, just as we started the study, the gyms closed down for the pandemic. So we bought everybody a pull-up bar, and we brought everybody a scale so they could weigh themselves. But then the gyms opened back up. And so it was a lat pull-down, a bench press, and a leg press. And we made a composite score out of the three, and like, what? percent change in the three combined for resistance training was moving. Mm-hmm.
1: So how do you factor in the sort of adaptations that would naturally occur over 12 weeks of, say, starting push-ups or starting pull-ups?
0: So, yeah, so nobody could be starting. You had to have been working out for five years. Okay. So the average person had been doing this for five years. Mm-hmm.
1: And what was the the hypothesis? That they team? wouldn't
0: be any different. Mm-hmm. In the three diets, okay, that they'd lift just as much, and they'd run just as far.
1: When you sort of analyze what they were eating, was there any major differences between macronutrients or oh, other huge. parts of the diet? Oh yeah,
0: absolutely, massive. So, I mean, as you go from there, are a bunch of things where the plant based was always the plant based meat was always in the middle, right? So they were getting much more protein on meat. Mm-hmm. intermediate protein on plant-based and much less right. with vegan.
1: And you didn't want to match that, that was purposeful.
0: No, yeah, no. So that that's a good question though. I mean, the yeah, there's two kinds of questions. You can match everything, at which point, why would they be different? Because they're all matched uh, versus, oh, this is a different way of eating. So l- let me go back to one of my first trials, which is very formative for me and actually, came about right at the time the DASH trial was published. Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension was a massive blood pressure trial. Uh, Larry Apple and Frank Sachs led this decades ago. There's DASH1, there's DASH2. Um, and I, I think I'm proud to say, I hope that if they're listening, I'm not trying to steal their thunder, I really think my study was going before I read DASH. But when DASH came out, There was an arm that just ate a controlled diet, added more veggies and fruits, or added veggies and fruits and had low-fat dairy, but everything else changed as it would. If you have more veggies and fruits, you eat less of other things. If you have more veggies and fruits and more low-fat dairy, you change other things. And I distinctly remember in their concluding line, said, "Don't, don't ask us what specifically it was that lowered blood pressure. Maybe it was the potassium. Yes, the veggie and fruit people had a lot more potassium, but they also had more fiber and they had more garlic and they had more of other things. And we didn't design the study to say it was potassium. We designed it as, this is their regular diet. This is more veggies and fruits and the things that happen when you eat more veggies and fruits and with a low fat dairy. Because in my other study, we did low two low fat diets And this is for LDL cholesterol lowering among people who have high LDL. And we've very intentionally and in a very manipulated way made total fat the same, saturated fat the same, cholesterol the same. And our hypothesis in that study was that, oh, the docs are told before they give somebody with high cholesterol a statin prescription, you should try diet first. Hey, doc, what diet should I go on? Well, this is 20 years ago. You should be on a low-fat diet. And not much else. So what's low fat? Oh, low fat is 30% total fat, 10% saturated, and keep your cholesterol under 300. And so that's pretty much all they had to go with. So we matched those. But I made one convenience food and one whole food. So let me give you three quick examples. I gave lentil soup with cheese on it, whole grain bread with butter on it, and a spinach salad with egg in it. Why didn't I just give them lentil soup and whole grain bread and the salad? I needed to match the cholesterol and the total fat and the saturated fat. So some of the stuff was very intentionally matched because my question was, is it just low fat? Or is
1: it diet quality? Or is it
0: diet quality? Yeah, and so- What is that? I call it the, a guideline study. Uh, I don't think anybody else calls it the guideline study. 2005 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, one of my first studies, um, yeah, and it was, so the guy, the, what well, we also called it low fat plus, low flat, low fat plus had more fiber, more soy, more garlic, more antioxidants, more dozens of other things. And so I pretty much looked at what Larry Apple and Frank Sachs wrote and I said, okay, so I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was because <laughs> we, ju- we matched those things and the rest, they said that in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I get to say it over here when we publish this one, we, intentionally didn't match the other things cuz that's part of what happens when you eat food other things change so could we go back to what yeah. was different
1: so swap meat athlete
0: yeah so swap meat athlete the protein ranged from high to low carbs high to low fiber high to low you can imagine which directions these are going right
1: so the more the plant based more plant based was higher carb it was higher fiber it was lower protein and it was probably lower saturated fat
0: yes all those, they got all the things that you would expect. And Aubrey did such a nice job writing this because she pulled out some athletic guidelines and she said, even during the vegan phase, the protein was adequate for what they recommend for protein. And even for the um, runners who are on the omnivorous diet eating meat, they were getting like the amount of carbs that you should get to be a runner even when you were eating meat. So you could see that these things were going in different directions, but she, on a graphic, when she was presenting the results, she overlaid where the guidelines are. This is not enough, this is enough, this is more than enough. And you could see they fell into the guides where they were getting enough carbs and protein, where they were runners.
1: Just different ways of doing it.
0: Yeah, they were getting enough.
1: And so what were were the main findings results was there any differences yeah
0: no differences uh-uh. across across any of these things now let's stop for a minute because it was only four weeks uh, it was only 22 people
1: Have you had pushback on the, the so the four week thing I'm imagining some people thinking it takes longer to get the patients yeah.
0: yeah and this one in all honesty was practicality she had to graduate she had to write her honors thesis and get out. So here's what we're doing right now, but I'm not sure if we can actually address the duration. So another one of my fun projects that I do is the Menus of Change, University Research Collaborative. Uh, I was one of the founding members of this a decade ago, and it's pretty much started by Stanford and the Culinary Institute of America. We have 70 different universities in the U.S. who have pledged to use their dining halls as living laboratories. And the idea where you know, is there something where you can engage students and faculty and dining? Their job is to make good tasting food. So would they be willing to do research with us? And so now this is going to be a horrific acronym. Now it's going to be SWAPmeat Athlete MCRC. <laughs> so we started with SWAP.
1: You love your acronyms. <laughs> and
0: then we added the athlete thing. Um, yeah, but SWAPmeat is clever. Swap meat Athlete MCRC is just marbles in your mouth but just for us so we can keep track. Um, So now we've invited multiple schools to do this with us. So we're gonna do it, now the pandemic's over, now we can use the dining halls. So now we're gonna try to have hundreds of students, maybe. My goal would be 24 students in each of five or six schools. And go through the same thing. Do this, go through the same thing. Four weeks of
1: three diets.
0: Well, maybe five weeks, maybe six weeks. We're trying to work out academic quarters and semesters. We're actually having this You're not providing the
1: food, right? That you provide the guidelines and then they keep track like food log or- So
0: this is why it would be beautiful to do it in the dining hall because we know what they make in the dining halls. So these would be undergrads going to dining. The graduate students had to buy their own food for meat athlete. The undergrads, we would have designated things. We would say, here is the plant-based meat thing that's being offered today. Here is the vegan thing that's offered so today. So that would
1: be one meal a day at university?
0: No, all, the, well, at least two. So the, the goal would be like lunch and dinner or two, breakfast and dinner, same kind of thing. So you got to get a, a plant-based protein, plant-based alternative protein and a meat-based. These are interesting
1: studies, you must have fun.
0: Uh, It's so fun designing them, yes, and that's a pain in the butt to run them because you have to get people to agree and show up and provide the data and they're not mice and you can't chop their heads off and look at their spleen or anything, but yes, humans are.
1: And then people, as soon as it's published, say it wasn't long enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or or it was the wrong kind or the other thing and you say, sure, I'll just do it all over again your way. Have you
1: you thought about a, a DEXA scan in this type of study? And looking at body composition
0: yep uh and it, money was uh a factor for the other one
1: so if there's any dexa scan companies listening that, that sure. want to provide sponsorship
0: but we we have a dexa and i'm just trying to think yeah i mean how about muscle biopsies that's something i don't do we actually have a new funded center at campus the wu sai performance center so if we do this we could probably look them up at Stanford to see if they would do it. But if we're doing multiple universities, I can't guarantee that every one of the other ones would have that. So anyway, it's a new I- new idea thinking of using college campuses mm. and the dining hall facilities. Was
1: there Stanford. any subjective feedback from the, the athlete study that you have conducted? Were where people surprised or pleased with their results?
0: uh i'll give you the simplest one which is probably obvious but it's at least worth mentioning the runners thought they would do better on the vegan because of the carbs and the resistance trainers were concerned that they would do poorly less protein they really thought that they were surprised that they lifted and benched as much they really thought yeah this isn't going to work they were worried Mm -hmm. and so there's definitely a different mindset it went in both directions the runners one way and the resistance trainers the other way that was fun to think about yeah, and I don't know how to explore that. I need a psych professor. To yeah, help it's do that. an
1: interesting paper that kind of builds on. Have you come across uh, Hamilton Rochelle? He's a scientist down in Brazil, and he he conducted a study. He's been on the show. He conducted a, a study with Stuart Phillips, ah. and it was looking at a omnivorous dietary pattern versus a vegan diet. And it wasn't randomized because they actually wanted people who had been following these diets for more than 12 months. That was the oh, inclusion yeah. criteria. Right. And I think it was 12 weeks from memory. And in this particular baby, they did match protein. They matched protein at uh-huh. 1.5 grams or something per kilo, fairly, fairly high. And over 12 weeks put people through, I think, two resistance training sessions a week and and measured like uh, muscle hypertrophy and some one RM strength tests. And over that 12 week period, saw no significant differences between two
0: groups. Okay, now wait a sec. For 12 months, they had already been on those diets. That's why they were randomized. But were they all trained individuals?
1: These were non-trained individuals. Untrained. Untrained individuals. Ah, that makes it more interesting. And okay. So the re- the reason I believe that they didn't randomize it was they, they thought adherence would probably be better, but also, Maybe if you if you were uh, randomizing people to a vegan diet who hadn't been on it, they need a bit of time to get used to it. Yeah. So that yeah. was their kind of rationale for it. But I guess what I'm saying is there's, a I guess, a building body of evidence suggesting- There is. That yeah. a, a plant-based diet can be just as effective from a performance point of view. No doubt there needs to be more research, but-
0: Yeah. So in Aubrey's paper, she cites a lot of other studies Quite a few of them have their own limitations. They didn't measure adherence. They had a lot of dropouts. They, but as as she went through, she found most of the studies were pretty consistent with her own findings. And I think even in our discussion with Stu Phillips, we saw, I mean, he's, I see him on Twitter all the time saying, here's another one, plant-based and animal-based protein work out fine. Yes, once again, they see the same thing. It's not that big a deal. It's amount of protein and what's your baseline protein that you're getting already.
1: And, and is that resistance training stimulus there? That seems to be the most
0: important. It is, yeah. My one quote from him from a long time ago was, it's at least 90% of the training.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Tell me about the, the position statement and your role at the ah, AHA. So yeah. you're, you're the chair of the nutrition committee?
0: Yeah, so the American Heart Association has like 15 different uh, councils. One of them is the lifestyle council. And the Lifestyle Council has an obesity committee and an exercise committee and something else and a nutrition committee. Although, to be honest, the nutrition committee is pretty old. It goes back many decades. So it might have even... The nutrition committee was there before there was a Lifestyle Council. But anyway, that's where it lives. I'm the current chair. Uh, It's a two-year role for your vice chair for two and then your chair for two and then your past chair for two. So it's sort of like a a six-year role. And their main... one of one of the main things they do is they write scientific advisory statements about whatever the American heart has been getting from the general public that they're confused about. So, oh, is it fish? Oh, is it seed oils? Oh, is it saturated fat? Oh, is it ultra-processed foods? So whatever the public's confused about, they come to the committee and say, you know, which ones of these, would, what kind of expertise do you have now? So we have about 10 members on the committee. We have a whole bunch of liaisons from other councils that sit in and We vote and we do at least one paper, sometimes two a year. And the year before us, Alice Lichtenstein, who's been doing a lot of papers from Tufts for HA Forever, she had in 2006 sort of written an overview of American Heart Dietary Guidelines. And they hadn't been updated since then. You know, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans get updated every five years, so said 15 years. That's, that's long enough, let's update them and see if there's anything new. So their job was to look at all the evidence for cardiac arrest, sudden heart disease, stroke, uh, myocardial infarction. So they were looking at all the heart outcome data and all the diet studies that existed. And they said, given that there's 10 domains and here are the 10 domains of what we think, here's the things you should um, emphasize and here's the things you should avoid.
1: Characteristics of a heart-healthy
0: diet. Characteristics of a heart-healthy diet. And again, they did the evidence, uh, you know, which trials, what's observational, what's an RCT, randomized clinical trial. So then people said, okay, well, those are all the domains, but does that mean I can eat paleo? Does that mean I can eat vegan? And they said, so there's an opportunity here to do a a follow-up paper just based on patterns. Um, I've actually been part of the U.S. News and World Report rankings for the last few years, and the 2022 one, they had 40 patterns. I've seen that.
1: The Mediterranean or DASH diets usually won. It always wins,
0: yeah, and keto always loses. But it's amazing how many patterns there are. And I've actually had a frustration working with them thinking, you know, you keep asking me to go through this full list of 40 diets and say what evidence there is for each one of these. And what often happens is there's spin-offs of the diets. So let's take the low-fat vegan diet, for example. So Dean Ornish has promoted that. Caldwell Esselstein promotes that. Caldwell Esselstein's son has a diet called like pritikin, Fire Engine 2. Yeah. No, but fi- have you ever heard of like the Fire yeah, Engine? Yeah, I know. Uh
1: so Rip Esselstein. Yeah. Rip yeah. Esselstein. Yeah. Is the pritikin diet also a low fat?
0: Yeah. And the pritikin diet is is in that list, but it's So I don't have any evidence for the Fire Engine 2 diet, but it's basically Dean Ornish's diet. And so when they say, is there evidence for this? I feel like saying there is, but it's not when it's called that. It's when it's called something else. So I don't think there should be 40 diets. And so this is one of our first jobs. How many patterns really are there? And we wanted to get things that get rid of, we excluded things that uh, like Weight Watchers didn't count because it's not so much what you eat. It's a pattern. You get points for things. Uh, Whole 30 is like a, a sort of a crunch diet that you're doing for a while. It's not long-term, life-term. So we we excluded a bunch of those, and we ended up with 10 diets. And it basically started with DASH, but we also sort of thought Baltic, Nordic diet. If you look at those, they're pretty similar to DASH. And Mediterranean, and then there was the slew of veggie diets. So there's pescatarian, and then let's do the ovo's: ovo alone, lacto alone, ovo-lacto, vegetarian, or vegan with no ovo and no lacto. But I was very clear: I wanted to have two two vegan diets. One is very, very low-fat vegan, and one is more of a Mediterranean high-fat vegan, and standard low-carb, standard low-fat, paleo. And keto.
1: And when we're talking about these diets, we're, talk, we're, we're talking about focus on whole foods.
0: Yes, whole foods. And here's another part of the fun of it was so, uh, so when we do these papers for your American heart, there's a writing group. And so you're supposed to represent north, south, east, west. You're supposed to try the best you can to get black, white, Asian, Hispanic. You're supposed to get men and women, you're clinicians and non clinicians, PhDs in the writing group. On the committee. You're- on, the, on the writing group. So we have 10 people in the writing group, which can't represent every one of those cells, but it's quite a diverse group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Christina Peterson was a star from this. She's now at Tufts. Uh, Maya Vadivalu was my uh, co-chair on this. The fun part at the beginning was like, how many patterns are there? And then how are you going to say what the patterns are? And so what we did is, this is not a systematic review. We did not find every paper under the sun that had said this. But for, let's say, paleo or keto or vegan or Mediterranean or DASH, we went and found five or six papers that said, this is what we studied. And then we looked what they said they were doing. And it wasn't just what you emphasized or avoided. Super proud of this. And it was not my idea. I'm pretty sure this is Christina's idea or maybe Maya's idea. So we have a whole ton of supplement papers, one for each diet that says, okay, here's the five studies or six studies. And here's what they said to emphasize. Here's what you could include. Here's what you're encouraged to limit, but you don't have to completely avoid. And you really have to avoid this. So each one was defined by four categories. And when we looked at all the papers that said they were Mediterranean or low fat or whatever, they weren't consistent. They weren't entirely consistent. And we were very specifically looking at the 10 domains of the 2021 paper that Alice Lichtenstein wrote. But our job was, if these are the 10 domains, how consistent are the patterns with the 10 domains? So we had to find the papers to see how they defined them. And let me just give you one tricky one is, dairy in Mediterranean is a little gray. I know a Mediterranean diet score that dings you for eating dairy. And I know a Mediterranean diet score that gives you a point for having yogurt, right? Mm. So it's, there isn't one Mediterranean diet.
1: Right, that's interesting. So when you're looking at the evidence or studies, like, which Mediterranean diet is it?
0: Yeah, I really think if you get the Greeks and the Turks and the Moroccans and the French in one room, it could be a fist fight. <laughs> like, no, 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 mine is the Mediterranean diet. No, it isn't, it's, it's a thing, it's a pattern. And that that's the challenge with patterns is there's a lot of wiggle room. And the benefit is, Oh, if you're following this pattern, it allows you some flexibility. You know There isn't anything you really have to eat or anything you have to avoid, but you should eat along these lines. But that makes it a little harder to interpret. But we were ready for this. We thought this would be a fun paper to write. Say, okay, we don't have to prove if it keeps you out of the hospital or not. They did that in 2021. We just have to see how much the literature about this pattern of diet matches with the domains of things you should and shouldn't do. And so then we scored everything basically on a zero to 100 score. And we came up with four tiers, best tier, worst tier, middle tiers. I'll stop there for a minute. That's what we did.
1: It's fascinating. So essentially you're looking at all of these different popular dietary patterns that people are exposed to, whether they're reading articles online or buying diet books or on social media. How, how well do these dietary patterns mix, meet certain characteristics of a dietary pattern that we know leads to good long-term health?
0: Yeah, that part I was already established. So nobody's, where did, how come you didn't cite my paper? I wasn't trying to cite your paper. It's just trying to show if they match the 2021
1: And what were the high level? What are those characteristics of what had been established as characteristics of a dietary pattern that lend lend themselves to good long-term health?
0: You will be shocked. It's more vegetables and fruits and whole grains. Like some of that stuff never changes. I'll tell you what is the most interesting given how often we have discussed this protein. So if you haven't seen this, go look at the 2021 or share it with your viewers, listeners of the 10 domains Protein is one of the domains and it has four subdomains. So the first one is try to get most of it from beans and nuts. And then I hope I get all four right, but I'm not sure if I'm gonna. Um, When you have dairy, have low fat. You know, when you have fish, try to get the ones that have omega-3s. If you choose to eat meat try to choose lean meats. Uh,
1: we're we're going to put this table up on on the video on YouTube. I know the I know the exact image that you're talking about.
0: So I, I, so that was one thing that really struck me is that I think is different than the past that they really highlighted four levels of protein. Now, picture the nightmare this actually created for us because we needed we wanted to give one score for each domain. Do you get a point or not? And then we decided, well, they're not all really specific about them. Some of them are. So, okay, let's have a point. If you are following that and three quarters of a point, if if you're kind of following it and a half, if you mention it and zero, if you like don't mention it or say do the opposite. So we also had to come up with this scaled point score, but for protein we need, we needed one score and there were four subdomains. And if you're vegan, you're not supposed to have any meat. Like, do you, do you get zero or negative or, or what? Anyway, we had a lot of fun putting together the protein. I'm sure there are other ways to do it. So sadly, this part of our heat map, it ends up being a heat map, which I'm sure you'll share yeah. with your viewers. Green for good and red for bad and yellow for in the middle. But in the protein section, there are sort of these hatch hatch marks. Um, you know, They didn't address this because you can't address it. In a vegan diet, you're not supposed to have meat. Uh, and in a vegetarian diet, you can have yogurt, but in a vegan one, you can't. And in a vegan one, you won't have fish. And there were a couple other places in the grid where it was just sort of inappropriate because of what the diet is. They wouldn't have even talked about that. So some of the little squares in our grid are missing. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was intellectually, it was a blast, like trying to think, at the end of the day, I just want to score from zero to 100. How do I do this and recognize some of the subtle differences. Did anything
1: surprise you? Or did you already have, based on that, those 10 domains and your understanding of the dietary patterns, did you already have a kind of fair idea where these were gonna land?
0: Yeah, no, I I thought they would land where they did. Uh, The hardest ones are the middle ones. So at the top is Dash, Medi... Oh, well, here's a a quippy one. So we actually had Mediterranean ahead of Dash at first when we were just sort of making our lists. DASH scored higher for two reasons, just a little bit higher. One was DASH is super specific about sodium and Mediterranean is not really specific. And for American Heart, sodium's a big deal for hypertension. Secondly, Mediterranean, you get a point for drinking moderately, but you don't get a point for excessively drinking or abstaining. And DASH, you're not supposed to drink. And the guidelines said to not drink. And so DASH actually came out a little ahead of Mediterranean and so we had been working with this graphic and then ordering a sequence for a long time. At the end, we had to put DASH ahead of Mediterranean. There are still both the top two. And that was pescatarian and uh lacto vegetarian And at the end, not surprised it was keto and paleo because they recommend you exclude so many things that are key for American heart. So whether it's um, fruits or whole grains is, is a big deal for American heart. Um, avoiding saturated fat is a big thing for American Heart. So they got dinged on, and, and minimizing sodium, like keto, you need some sodium to keep up for part of the ketogenic diet. So they got, keto and paleo got dinged quite a bit. They ended up being at the bottom. In the middle were the harder ones. So sort of vegan was in the middle, the vegan higher fat, uh, low fat was in the middle. Uh, a little below them was the very low fat vegan because American Heart is not into very low fat. They want you to have healthy, unsaturated fat. So vegan, very low fat got dinged and low carb got dinged just because If as you read through all the papers, they really, oh, you really do need to limit even beans and even whole grains because you'll still get too many carbs. And so those, I think I just said all the... yeah. 10 dietary patterns right there, but it was such a blast. And I really, let me go back one more time to this This is probably too much inside baseball and too geeky for you. But, and I really want to thank Christina Peterson if she ever listens to this. This was a tireless job to see all the different diets to represent the 10 patterns and then clarify, emphasize, lim, uh, emphasize, include, limit, or avoid. It's super practical. So as much as I really like our heat map, another thing that was really helpful is if you're a doc, and this document is for, this paper is for docs. They'll have a patient come in saying, doc, I'm on this diet, what do you think? They're like, I get no training in nutrition. I'm not even sure what vegan is. I'm not sure what paleo is. I'm not sure what this thing is. Oh, here's the table. That diet says you should emphasize this. You're allowed to include that. You should try to limit that and you very much should avoid that. Super practical. And we also had to have another twist in the paper. We had to say, this heat map we have of the things that are adherent or not, this is as intended. There's a flip side to this of as followed. So let me give you the quickie there. The vegans who have the white flour tortilla with um, crappy salsa on it and a Coke. It's like, that is, That is not what we meant. And
1: some Oreos.
0: We, yes, and some Oreos. We meant this other thing over here. Or the keto folks who are just eating all meat. Because yes, meat is low in carbs. But the keto diet is 70% fat. And you can't have 30 or 40% protein. You'll throw yourself at a ketogenesis on that. And so we made it clear that there's as intended and as followed and there's a whole clinical section in there saying, oh, if you're a doc, you might want to ask him these couple extra questions, but very fun project. Do you know
1: what what could be interesting? And maybe it's an extension of that paper. Okay. Is I'm just seeing pra- practical implications here. So you, you're you in the clinic and you're speaking with your doctor and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying a keto diet or I'm enjoying a, a low fat vegan diet. It would be nice for the doctor to know, okay, what are the kind of downsides of those dietary patterns and what are the steps to make them healthier? Like, for example, if, do you think a keto diet is necessarily or would rank as low if someone, let's say had a bias for their fats and they were getting it mostly from like fatty fish, avocado, nuts and seeds.
0: Yeah. And it is actually designed in that way. So, and actually one of the things that we always want to encourage physicians to do is say, you are on keto, I bet you're hardly eating any refined grains or added sugars. Congrats. Oh my God, that is America's biggest problem. And so from what we've seen, folks on keto, they kick butt at getting the added sugars and refined grains out of their diet. I am a little concerned as a clinician about the saturated fat. So have you thought about, you know, where are you getting most of your fat? Have you tried the fatty fish and the avocado and the nuts and seeds type approach? So yeah, it's for the clinician to say, here's the, all of these diets have good things about them. Like if you really... I'm pretty sure we have the statement in there. If you looked across all of them, this is my we agree more than we disagree love of nutrition. If I could keep saying this message again and again. We all agree, um, more vegetables, more whole foods, less added sugar, less refined grain. All 10 of the diets said those four things. I'm
1: picturing an image from one of your lectures.
0: Yes, <laughs> and it's because it's, it's not like, yeah, we already do that already. No, we don't. We hardly eat any vegetables. We hardly eat any whole foods. We eat a crap ton of added sugar and refined grain. If all 10 patterns agree on that, why don't we have a kumbaya moment and say, yes, let's help America do that. And then maybe later they'll do my kind after that. But all those are big problems in the U.S. diet and maybe globally in many places, and we're not doing very well at making it clear how consistent that message is and making it easy for people to choose foods that are aligned with that.
1: Right, 60% of calories coming from ultra processed foods.
0: Yes, some of the latest data, yeah, mm. exactly.
1: The low fat vegan diet there, can we double click just for a second on that? Yeah. Do you see, and I know you're writing, you're, we've well, just finished writing a book yep. for okay. General Pop, Uh Um, so you're not just doing academic writing you're also writing a book for everybody that they'll Uh be able to find hopefully soon on their shelf at their bookstore but i'm sure within the writing of the book you've thought about fats how do you how do you like people to think about fat in their diet
0: yeah fat can be your friend yeah if it's in these whole foods and and really the the two diets And this is interesting. It kind of goes back to Kevin Hall. Kevin Hall did a really good low-fat, low-carb diet. And he often doesn't say it. If you look closely, it is low-fat vegan and it's keto. And I have messed around with these before. And there there are no two diets that I have a harder time getting people to adhere to than those because they're the most restrictive. So let's go with low-fat, very low-fat vegan. 10% fat, that's like, Hardly any nuts and seeds, probably none. Um, Fatty fish, you can't have. You can't have avocado. You can't sauté things in oil. You can't.
1: Probably can't even have a lot of tofu.
0: Yeah, you. Yeah, it is so low in fat, and it's pretty bland. God, fat. fat, Well, sugar tastes good, salt tastes good, but fat. Yeah, for these unsaturated fats. Yeah, so the very low-fat vegan is one that not only doesn't align with American Heart, but almost as much as keto, which in in all my studies, have I've had a really hard time people getting to adhere to that. It's really hard to adhere to very low fat, vegan. And I'm all for diets that, as you have said in your book, this isn't something that you go on. This is a noun, this isn't a verb. This is your diet, this is the way you eat. You eat Mediterranean, you eat vegan for the rest of your life, this is who you are, this is how you eat, this is, in the U.S., this is how you go to the beach or how you go to the wedding. But in real life, the diet is the thing that you are eating and is you. And if you can't maintain it, it's not going to be good for you.
1: And so you see the unsaturated fats as being inherently like beneficial. So these fats that are in nuts and seeds, I guess the point I'm getting at for, for listeners is there's no reason to fear them.
0: No fearing. Yeah, the seed oil thing. Seed oils did not because 911. Seed oils did not cause COVID. Seed oils did not cause all kinds of other things. They're good. Yeah, unsaturated fat is good. And interesting, that's one of the reasons it was fun to do this American heart diet pattern thing, because that's one of the categories. You're supposed to get unsaturated fat in your diet. And the low-fat thing went out of control, and it went the wrong way, and it backfired on the health professionals, and people had added sugar and refined grain instead
1: so those 10 domains that you were looking at from the previous aha paper those are not really controversial no like within within, within, ac- controversial. within the sort of nutrition scientist academic world those are certainly not controversial however if someone jumps on social media or is reading the papers they might be left thinking that it's kind of not worked out, it's nothing settled and it's all over the shop. And that um, we really don't know what to eat at all. And you you sent me an email and you said, I just wanna read out this this quote because I feel like it's pertinent here. It, it kind of helps explain this. Okay. You said that with context in mind, most con- most of the controversies in nutrition would look more like consensus.
0: Yes. Oh, I want to hang my hat on that. And to be honest, I, I really feel like with tremendous satisfaction, that happened to me and Stu Phillips on your podcast. So there was a tweet that went back and forth about protein and and the RDA and 0.8 grams per kilogram. And and in 20, whatever, how many characters do we get? 126 or 186? I think it's
1: changed recently. Feels like I don't
0: know. Anyway, it looked like we disagreed, but I wrote him a thing and said, You know, it's just not enough characters. Here's what I really think. And he wrote back what he really thought. And I said, that's why we ended up on your show saying, you know, actually, we agree about most of this. If we wanted to be theoretical or if you really wanted to get into the weeds, I can see how this could be an issue. But for most Americans, it isn't because this is what they're choosing. And in the context of instead of what or with what, what's really going on. So here's what's been really... um, Satisfying for me, Simon. So I've helped the Diabetes Association with their guidelines, and I've helped American Heart with their guidelines. And I'm currently on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And when you get a bunch of scientists in the room, they look at the data and they almost always conclude the same things when they're looking at all the data. If you take one study out of context, or if you find one unusual situation, you you can make a controversy out of it. But once you've put it in that context, oh, I didn't just mean eating this. I meant eating this instead of that. And I meant eating it with this this other thing that comes with it. Oh yeah, right. Okay, then you're right. I would have picked that too. Like if you put two plates in front of most scientists say, which one do you want the person to eat? Or another way to think of it is if you had like a really, so David Katz has this uh, diet assessment program called Diet ID and in it, this is a brilliant idea um, he was trying to rank across this range of patterns of diets mm-hmm. uh, and it was supposed to it's an assessment tool have you ever have i ever spoken to you about this or do you I've know seen it? it yeah i've yeah. seen
1: it and i've read his book the truth about food that's yeah a, that's a big book
0: <laughs> so it's so the idea is photographic pattern recognition mm-hmm. and uh is this okay to go on this tangent because yeah. this is fun okay so we can
1: we can go on whatever tangents you want
0: okay So, uh, and the story's kind of fun. And sorry, David, if you're listening and, and I'm getting this wrong, but Apple invited him out when they were making the Apple Watch. And they said, we need somebody to tell us how we can measure diet with a watch. And he flew out and said, you can't. Crap. Okay, I'm going back. I flew all the way across the country. They want to measure diet on a watch. You can't. It's much harder than that. But on the way back in the plane, he thought of two things at the same time. This is David Katz synthesizing things. He's really good at this. Have you ever seen a book called Hungry Planet? And Hungry Planet has been all over the internet multiple times. Uh, It's a couple from San Francisco. One is a photographer and one's a journalist. And they went to 30 different families in 25 countries. And they lived with them for a week. And while they were eating, they collected a duplicate portion of all the meals that they ate during the week. And at the end of the week, they put that duplicate portion either on a kitchen counter or a blanket or something in front of them. And they had the family stand behind the food. And there's a family in Chad that mm, was living in a refugee camp. I have seen this. That's spent a buck a, a week on food for the entire family. It's a, an enormous bag of dried grain, and it's a small, paltry amount of other things. And at the other end is a German family who spent 500 bucks on food. And the, their table's just overflowing with all the organic, foofy things that they got and it's just a wealth of flourishing nourishing produce etc and as you go through this continuum from the refugee camp to this sort of great excess in an instant you you notice things like wow no packaged food a lot of packaged food a lot of produce no produce a lot of meat no meat a lot of bread no and so to, in an instant you kind of get a sense of what they're eating without without doing a 24-hour recall or a food frequency questionnaire. And so David thought, you know, maybe this is like an eye exam. Let's like reverse engineer the food. Instead of asking everybody what they're eating, what you have for breakfast, what you have for lunch and dinner, and let's ask you tomorrow and the next day. Let's just have pictures of patterns of food like that Hungry Planet book. Do you eat more like that one or that one? He said, maybe we could make it like an eye doctor. So here's A and here's B. Here's A and B, which one do you like? Okay, you picked B. How about B or C, B or C? Oh, you still like B. How about B or D, B or, oh, you like D. Okay, that's it, we're done. That's how long it takes to assess your diet. However, the work that went into that, so my team helped him develop this.
1: To like validate that.
0: Yeah, like what goes in the pictures? How many days of food? What are the iconic foods? How many foods do you have to list? And his original goal, which never worked, is he wanted 15 levels of quality for every diet pattern. And we, at one point I said five, but he, he got 10. So working with this for years, he has 10 quality levels of every diet. And if you get to the highest level of Dash, the highest level of Mediterranean, the highest level of low fat, a lot of these dishes could be for almost all the diets. So I have a picture that I use in a slide sometime. That's a bunch of broccoli with some olive oil on it and slivered almonds. And I said, this, this is keto and vegan and Mediterranean, right? And then kind of at the worst level, there's some overlap too. So what are the defining features of going up just one? What's the difference between level four and five, five and six? They're kind of subtle. But again, for my kumbaya moment, as you as you get up to the higher quality of all of them, they get more and more similar across those. Yes, the keto certainly doesn't have any grains or or beans, but a, a single dish, this dish could be almost all the diets because it met the guidelines of all of them. So I wish we would focus on the commonalities on, on those dishes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you ever get any pushback? I think I see online, certainly, there feels like there's some distrust in various medical institutions. And I think there's certainly some people that would say, you know, the American Heart Association has a history of conflicts of interest. I don't know if that's true, but what would you kind of want someone to know about, I guess, the process of writing that position statement? with in terms of input from any industries, whether that's a pharmaceutical industry or food industry?
0: Sure, yeah, well, I, I can certainly speak to American Heart in particular. Um, so yeah, n- no industry influence. After we write it, um, we have to submit it to a team of like 10 reviewers who try to rip it apart and send it back to us. And once we've addressed all their comments, there's another American Heart board that has to look at it For their brand they don't want it to go out with their brand massive table like all all the conflicts of interest of every writer and every reviewer and you you can have some conflicts of interest it's not that everybody was squeaky clean but has to be reasonable i'm going to flip that on you just a little bit the american heart association every year at their annual meeting has uh, a session where they invite uh dunkin donuts mcdonald's uh kentucky fried chicken They invite the food industry in and they say, this is what we do at American Heart. We're we're trying to make this happen. You are the food industry. You're trying to make money. Is there any place here where we could overlap? And it's pretty fascinating because it'd be one thing to just exclude the industry and say, you know, big food, you're just an enormous problem and we're just out to get you, but they're, they're not going anywhere. And so I, I give them huge credit for um, bringing them in. There's like a four-hour session in the conference. Trying to include them in that conversation. Yeah, and there are some really fascinating people that are into sustainability and health within those companies. And there are some tense moments. Like we'll say, this is what we think and that is what you make. Like the thing you make is the opposite of what we say. And They showed up though. And we, and we let them in at the table. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So, um, are there, you know, there's always some level of conflicts of interest. If you, if you get to the level where you get to be, uh, an advanced professor, an academic on committees and things, at some point, the food industry has asked you to be an advisor and you've turned some of them down and you've accepted some of them, but there's very few people, other than maybe Marian Nessel. she remains squeaky clean.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the process? I guess with the committee, into is is there is there much debate and going back and forth throughout the process of of writing for writing that one paper? of these papers? Yeah. Oh,
0: a lot. Yeah, I mean that's the whole point. It's going back and forth and asking the clinicians. So in our diet pattern paper, there were four clinicians, two more from the diabetes world and two more from the cardiovascular world. Yeah what is this helpful to your patients or not or how is this not helpful to your patients so you're getting the academic perspective the clinical perspective um, huge health equity these days oh my god none of the papers go out of american heart without health disparities health equity socioeconomic position like are, are you are you making it harder for people who don't have resources by saying this yeah, that's important. Is this is this unfair to someone who doesn't have the resources to make that kind of choice? Is this cultural appropriation? Is this inappropriately culturally targeted? Yeah, that that part's actually been really impressive. You can't move forward without having that, and we have a whole section on that in the diet pattern paper.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about the some of the food insecurity stuff in the in the health matters ah yeah um, talk. But before we get to that while we're on this topic of dietary patterns, I do have a follow-up question on diet fits. Okay. And we discussed that episode 145.
0: I, I knew it was 145. Yeah. Uh,
1: before I kind of ask the follow-up question that I have, maybe you can just remind people very high level what that study looked at and what the what's the main takeaway that's important for people to understand.
0: For diet fits, okay. You an hour and a half? No, you want me to do the high level thing. So I had done a previous study with four diets that were very different in carb and fat content. And there wasn't really much difference between the diets on average, but there was a huge within group response to different levels of carbon fat. And so I thought, you know, I don't really think it's so much the carbon fat. I think there might be some mediating factors like maybe genetic predisposition or metabolic predisposition. So I should do a whole new study that ended up being called Diet Fits, and we'll only have two diets. It's going to be as low in fat as we can possibly make it, but still keep it healthy and still make it reasonable and a low in carb, just the same way. And we're going to get 600 people this time, and we're going to follow them for a year. And on the side, we're going to genotype them and we're going to look at their metabolism because we think that we will get a huge range of response within low fat and within low carb. We think on average, they'll be about the same and maybe we can help people understand what they're predisposed to or not much along the lines of precision nutrition or personalized nutrition. And in fact, almost to the T, they both lost after 12 months on average, 11 or 12 pounds. And if you looked at the pattern of individuals within those group, in, in both groups, somebody gained 20 pounds and lost 50 or 60 pounds. And those weren't the outliers, everything in between. So as you draw what I call a waterfall plot where every person is one bar on the graph and you scale them from who lost the most to who gained the most, they were superimposable. You could put one right on top of the other. The, the average difference was completely negligible, but huge within diet arm uh, variability, and so that yes, ah, oh, this is the real question. What predisposes this huge difference? <gasps> we have these insights that genotype or insulin resistance will do it. And we, for a high level here, we can go to more detail if you want, neither of them worked. Genotype failed and metabolism failed.
1: When you say failed, those, those were unable to predict who, who would do well?
0: When we split people out within the two diet arms, it, it didn't make any difference. They lost on average the same amount of weight, whether they were the right or the wrong genotype, which means we didn't really genotype them very well because it didn't make a difference. And using this uh, insulin 30 marker, which sort of gets it insulin resistance, um, and multiple papers have shown this, but not in our study, we couldn't replicate it.
1: So was this paper, would you say, this was not the predicted result for uh, those who were kind of going into this study um, and putting forward the carbohydrate insulin model. Yes. yeah. So it was a bit of a shock.
0: Yeah. And this is a series of things that um, the Nutrition Science Initiative funded, one being Kevin Hall's study, one being ours, one the work of David Ludwig. David Ludwig has continued along this line. He's still a fervent believer in this, but. Uh, I feel like Diet Fits refutes it. I feel like Kevin Hall's work refutes it.
1: What about David? I believe he did a reanalysis recently.
0: He did what? Savior?
1: He did a reanalysis oh, oh, of, 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 some, Diet of Fits. The, some of the data from Diet Fits. Yep. Did you? You? I'm sure you've looked at that. Did, that. did that change any of the way that you interpret the study or, or think about?
0: No, but this is, so this is important. So he focused on the three and six month data. So Diet Fits has 12 months data. And this is actually, this is again, inside baseball, this might be too nuanced, but, so you can approach a 12 month study, statistically speaking in two ways. One is you can look at how much did they change after 12 months. You could also look, if you have multiple data points, at the trajectory of how you got to 12 months. The trajectory is a little different. When we start, you have to say upfront which way you're gonna do it, because it's cheating, to say, I'm gonna look at everything under the sun and whatever's statistically significant, that's the one I'm gonna lead with. So he said, I'm interested in baseline versus 12 months. So in fact, low carb lost weight faster and a little more weight by three and six months, but they regained it more. So by 12 months, there was no difference. So David was focusing on the three and six month data and there are some differences there. I don't care if it's not there, to, if it's not right. sustainable. So it doesn't
1: change the way that you think about a low fat versus a low um, carb diet. Yeah, I'm
0: not interested in, in that. And you know, the simple explanation for me is on low fat, people eat about a hundred grams of fat a day and carbs, they eat three or 400 grams of carbs a day. We asked them both to get to 20 grams of fat or carb a day and then titrate back up to what was realistic. The people on low carb had more room to remove carb to get to 20 grams than the people on fat. And so I can sort of see how initially they kind of made a bigger change going low carb than low fat. But once they titrated to the place that was realistic that they could maintain, they ended up at the same weight.
1: What do you think it is that explains why some people lost a lot of weight in both arms and some didn't? And I think we may have previously very quickly touched on this question of: Do you think if you took someone who lost a lot of weight in the low carb diet and had them on, that same exact person, do you think they would have also have done well on the low? Sorry, if they did well on the low carb diet, they would yep. have then then done well on also the low fat diet. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let's let's go two directions. And one, I would say yes. I think there are people who are. Uh, more capable of making big changes in your diet. And when you make changes, you're more conscious of it. You're more intentional. You're not just eating mindlessly. I think that's one of the best ways to lose weight. A lot of our eating is mindless. And so if you were, okay, I'm thinking of this. Um, Oh, wait, is this, I'm trying to think if this is published yet. It isn't, but I, I don't think it's a big enough deal that I have to hide this. So we, um, I don't think I ever told you about this one. Before we did diet fits, we did a warm up where the, the approach we used in diet fits, this thing I've been doing with my hands, this like go to 20, titrate up, keep it good quality. We call that limbo titrate quality. It doesn't roll off your tongue. Nobody's ever gonna repeat it. It's just our thing. That was our, oh, I'm not gonna set a percent of low carb and low fat. I just want them to eat as low as they can but I want it to be good quality, and I I want it to be realistic. Uh, We recruited 60 people to do that study to develop that, and the avocado industry funded it. So I'm also an avocado industry shill. (laughs) Uh, They were really happy that they thought I would do a a low carb arm that had avocados. Mm. They said, do you think people will lose weight on low carb while eating avocados? I said, yep, I'm pretty darn sure they will. said, oh, you can have some money. So in this study, we were practicing for diet fits. And to practice this, we did a weight loss crossover study. That's, that's insane. Now, wait a sec. When you talk about carryover effects, which is a huge problem with a crossover, right? So if you start here and something happens and then you cross over, you're not, you're not the same. Or right, it's a huge problem. So nobody should ever do weight loss crossover study we were expecting people to lose weight but i wanted recruitment to happen more quickly and i said you know what this is just practice for the other study let's make it a crossover so let's make it six months on low fat or low carb and then switch if anybody wants to and there were 60 people in it and 40 people switched and uh this thing didn't happen that you just like no i thought people would get a kick start. i i thought they would say ah wait a sec, now I'm on a new diet. Okay, now I'm going to be more intentional. I'll be thinking, I'm excluding new things. It would sort of kickstart their weight loss again. It didn't. Like whatever weight they lost, and they both lost pretty similar weight at six months, it was just level for the next six months. I don't think you're ever going to see a crossover weight loss study like this. So wait till it comes out, which might undermine what I just said. I, I think there could be something about this intentionality, I'm on a diet, uh, I'm doing this thing, and if I was really good at low fat, maybe I would have been really good at low carb. So that would be a personality trait, uh, self-efficacy, uh, how much social support do you have? There could be a lot of factors like, I'm sure there's a lot of factors like that, explaining why one person would be more successful. Who's most versus least depressed? things like that, but the other one, and I'm pretty sure I know you wanted to get here was this satiety thing. What if there's some kind of personal precision nutrition related to what's filling or what's not filling?
1: So as in the foods that fill you up on fewer calories are different.
0: you up, and what if they're different? And so this, um, in the middle of doing diet fits, The 2013 updated obesity guidelines came out from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and the Obesity Society. And they went through every diet under the sun that they could find. And they did a very systematic review of every single diet. And they had this stunning uh, conclusion at the end of this that said, as long as you reduce calories, you lose weight on any of them. Which a lot of people would would have said, duh, yes. But not the people who say a calorie is not a calorie and we could go there if you want, but.
1: But I guess the what I'd be interested in there is, that's true if you're in a calorie deficit, you'll lose weight, but ideally you want that to feel as easy as possible.
0: And that's why I love this, because I, I cling to this one paragraph from this paper that no one else seems to have paid attention to. And the little paragraph says, yes, duh, it's energy restriction. However, interestingly, among the studies that we reviewed, Quite a few of them had a prescribed energy restriction and quite a few of them didn't, but they achieved an energy restriction. And so I'm clinging to those last couple of words. Wait a sec. You didn't prescribe it, but they achieved it. What does that mean? That must mean they were full. Like you didn't tell them, okay, do the math and cut back on 500 calories a day. I mean, think how depressing that is. You're signing up for a weight loss study. I know how you could lose weight just eat less every single day for a week, a day. No, forever. Like eat less. That sucks. Like I'm going to be hungry every, I'm not excited about signing up for this. And this happened as we were thinking that in diet fits, we never had a prescribed energy restriction. We only said eat low in carb or eat low in fat. We actually had them, we said, titrate up. If you are hungry and you can't do this forever, you're not there yet. You need to add more fat or carb. And it has to be good quality. It can't be crap. And we want this to be a diet for life if it works. And we didn't ever prescribe an energy restriction. And so the thing that, that came to my mind through all this was this idea of satiety and satiation, which are really actually two different words because satiety for me means when did I stop eating that meal? And satiation means when, do I, when did I initiate the next meal? I think there's a tremendous amount of potential for that to be individualized. Mm -hmm. I would love to see a study, and I haven't figured out how to design it yet, where you would look for that. Although, to be honest, in multiple classes and a couple conferences, I have looked out the audience and said, what do you think of this idea? And let me just tell you this. I'm going to propose that for breakfast, you either have cheesy eggs Or you have uh, a bowl of steel-cut oats with some berries and low-fat milk on it. Who thinks the cheesy eggs would be more satiating? Half the hands go up. Who thinks the steel-cut oats with berries and low-fat milk would be more satiating? Half. What do you think would explain
1: that? Is it like the foods you're exposed to as a kid and the reward centers? Or
0: yeah, I I don't think it's it's probably probably beyond just the chemical reaction. Probably part of it is. What do you think is a normal diet, or or what experience do you associate with that? What experiences of bloating or discomfort do you associate with eating that way?
1: Right. So this is kind of like the next layer deeper than because I guess when satiety gets talked about broadly, and there's researchers like Kevin Hall that are kind of slowly piecing together some of the characteristics, and you hear about fiber, uh, energy density there's kind of the hedonic nature of the food or hedonic factors. Protein usually gets thrown in. So would you say those are kind of like broad characteristics of a food that affects satiety? But what you're saying is it could be quite individual from there as to what are the specific foods that are going to fill you up on less calories versus the next person.
0: Right? And so if you presented the same person with the two breakfasts, would they stop at different levels of calories? And would they wait longer to the next meal? Another one to throw in there is the Barbara Rolls volumetrics thing, where it's just the size. Like you look at it and you say, oh, I'm gonna be full when I eat that, cause that's really big. And she's done very clever experiments where she manipulates calorie level. And they say, here's the same number of calories or here's different levels of calorie, but the same size. And people just eat for size.
1: So how do you, how do you kind of, approach this other than telling someone to eat whole foods if someone was sitting down next to you at dinner and said professor christopher gardner you've you've done 20 clinical trials (laughs) (laughs) and you've taken 20 million dollars or something from from uh, research funding i want to lose some weight how do i approach this
0: yeah well the first thing i would do is the whole food thing i would kind of explain the volumetrics, etc Um, but I would say biohack. So if you do this thing, if you ate more vegetables and ate whole foods and ate less added sugar and refined grain, and you really did those things, those are four big things that most Americans don't eat. After that, I think there's some low carb and some low fat people. If you got that foundation, right? I think there's a bunch of people that are going to do better with the cheesy eggs and a bunch of people that are going to do better with the steel cut oats on eating until they're satiated. So my my better example would be like a veggie omelet. So here's the egg. It's not vegan. But it's got it's plant-based. It's whole food plant-based, but it's got an egg in it. Yeah, it has an egg in it. Eggs really are better than frosted cheerios or or fruit loops with marshmallows in it. Yes, I'd pick the eggs over that and the, and the pop tart. Okay, but yeah, let's make it a healthy omelet with some veggies in it. Some salsa on it and for the steel cut oats let's not pour some sugary stuff on top of that let's just make it steel cut oats and some dried fruit and put some nuts on top of that and so a little they're both whole food plant based but then biohack and add some fat or add some more fiber like mess with the the unsaturated fat and the fiber food sources to see what fulfills you, fills you up. Do you think that's,
1: you. that's? it is a question of going either low fat or low carb? Is there a problem with being in, in the middle? Like no, moderate, not at moderate, all. moderate? Yeah. That's okay too.
0: Yeah, so actually, and one of my favorite things, I liked it. So there's a slide, I think the name is Shen. I show it this all the time. It's like a 2020 uh, NHANES uh, paper. It's a National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 1999 to 2016, I think. And it it shows how much, uh, not only, first the first graph is how much carb, fat, and protein we get. And the stunning thing is it hasn't moved in 20 years. Like we eat the same amount of carbs, proteins, and fats. The next set of slides breaks it into three types of fat, an, animal and plant protein, and high and low quality carbohydrate. And the most fascinating thing to me is, let's start with the fats on this side of the graph. So saturated mono and poly they're all just about 10 percent each and they make up about 30 percent they're not exactly 10 but they're super close animal is about 10 or 11 and plant is about five or six percent protein let's let's just call them both 10 just to round up high quality carbohydrate this whole line never changes 20 years 10%. 10 percent 10 10 10 10 10 10 low quality carb 40 percent crappy carbs
1: so that's the lowest hanging fruit you'd say
0: Yes, lowest hanging vegetable in my mind, but (laughs) go ahead, we'll go fruit too. But so what I often say is, what if somebody replaced, like got rid of the 40 and did it all with fatty foods? I bet there's that person out there. What if there's somebody took the 40 and did that all with more veggies and beans and whole grains? I bet that person's out there. But really the better thing is probably more carbs and more fats. Just get rid of the 40% that's crappy and do healthy carbs and f- healthy fats. That's probably gonna work for even more people. So yes, I would totally agree with, there might be room for low carb and low fat, but I think there's just even more room for get rid of the crappy carbs and put good carbs and good fats back.
1: Given your interest in, in weight loss, have you been kind of tuning into the GLP one agonist conversations? Is that interesting? Oh.
0: It is interesting. It it seems to work, mm. like a
1: lot, fifteen twenty percent.
0: Yeah, at a scary level. I just saw a funny one yesterday about um, uh, that butt follow up. So there's like Ozympic oh, gut or, or butt or something. Like there's some saggy skin that you get when you lose that much weight. Interesting. Um, the one thing that that definitely bothers me is the you got to be on it for life thing, right? It's not a thing that will just work and then you're done. Right? We don't have long-term data. But yeah, it works. It's that middle of the road. To be honest, there's there's a clinician, Neil Zuntheit at Stanford, who presented this to me really bluntly years ago. And he said, you know, with diet, you can lose like maybe 5% weight and maintain it for some people. For bariatric surgery, 30. There's nothing at 15. What is the thing that's 15? And it's these new medications.
1: And 15%, I mean, that's, that's a, a weight that various trials have shown can take someone from having type 2 diabetes to putting them
0: into remission. Yeah. It's amazing. Yep. It's amazing class of drugs.
1: That's what's also interesting and this is anecdotal, but I've seen, so I don't believe this has been published at all, but I think some doctors have spoken about the fact that some of their patients that are being prescribed GLP-1 agonists are having less problems with other addictive behaviors like smoking and gambling and drinking.
0: Well, and it's kind of like bariatric surgery. Like it's not even after they lost all the weight, right after bariatric surgery, a bunch of things cleared up. So there's some amazing mechanistic things going on, sending signals to our brain. Maybe we're back at the microbiome.
1: Yeah, modulating the reward centers of the brain. Yeah,
0: we are complicated suckers.
1: (laughs) Speaking of vegetables, Okay. Dish study. Where you oh, I thought that was pretty interesting, right? right. You found something you, you found a way to get people to eat 29% more vegetables. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. And and really you have to start with who thought of this and it was not me at all. It's a psych professor named Ali Crum who's genius.
1: Okay, Ali Crum.
0: Alia, but we call her Ali Crum. Uh and her focus is mindsets so her psychological lane of of inquiry is how would you change somebody's mindset in a way that that it was doing them harm and if you could change it it would help them and to be honest she picked vegetables one day but she picked 40 other things other days so it's not like vegetables is her thing she just thought oh there's some people who don't like vegetables that's a mindset let's see if we could work with that and we also have uh a linguistics professor at Stanford who won a MacArthur Genius Award named Dan Jurafsky. And he wrote a book on food words. So in linguistics, he's really interested in the words we use to describe foods. And so the two of them got together with a PhD student named Brad Turnwald, and they looked up Stanford Dining and they said, hey, you guys, can we do like a vegetable intervention with you? And they said, okay, you know, what do you need? And they said, well, how, how many vegetables do you serve in an academic quarter? And they counted up and 17. They said, and how often do you serve them? Well, we serve four or five every night. So we serve all of them multiple times over a 10 week quarter. And they said, okay, so here's our whole idea. We don't want you to change recipes. All we want you to do is change the signage. All we're asking, this is the only burden we're placing on you and we'll do it. We'll put different signs out over the course of the quarter and we will take the broccoli and the carrots and the whatever, and we'll just manipulate the sign. But you keep putting out the same recipe every week. And we think, due to mindsets, that we will put out three different types. And one will just be basic, so there'll be carrots. And one will be health-oriented, added value. So these are either gonna be um, high-fiber carrots or low-sodium carrots. So that's presence of a glorified nutrient and absence of a vilified, but either way, added value, not just carrots. Or we'll have twisted citrus glazed carrots, which just sound gastronomically more appealing. And this probably doesn't sound like rocket science here. So when they did this, and they did all the different vegetables, and they actually did this across five or six different schools, uh, they took like 20 five, 30% more vegetables when they said twisted, citrus glazed carrots compared to basic carrots. Now, this was not the epiphany for me. It was like, duh. So the thing that is crushing about this study personally is that when they said high fiber or low sodium carrots, they took 25% less than if they were just carrots. Less. I spent my life looking why high fiber carrots (laughs) would be good for you or low sodium carrots would be good for you. I can point to your blood pressure. I can point to your LDL cholesterol. I can point to the health benefits.
1: I think when people see low sodium, they think tasteless.
0: Yes, (laughs) that is what has happened is we have dissociated health and taste. Like it's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive.
1: So when we read that in terms of making our decision, taste is more important than the health claim.
0: Uh And you have three pillars in your book we ate with our eyes taste isn't one of the pillars you have the the food system and the nutrition profit thing and the the other broken thing i think so we have three pillars now in our menus of change university research collaborative and the three pillars are lead with taste and then health in the environment in the back start with taste so i have twisted citrus glazed carrots are these good for me i don't know i don't care these are frickin' great. These are twisted citrus glaciers. No, no, I'm really interested. Oh, yeah, well, carrots have carotenoids and have these other things, and yeah, they're grown in the ground, and okay, let's switch to soybeans and they're nitrogen plants. They're putting nitrogen back in this. So- yeah, they're good for the environment and health, but don't you wanna know how unapologetically delicious these foods are?
1: That also seems to be the approach with the kind of latest wave of plant-based meat alternatives. To really lead with it has to taste as good or better yeah. and it has to also be priced at a similar price so it's yeah. like flavor and and price seem to be more important than the the health status of the food
0: and you got to hit all those and so that's why so at this point in my career i've been at stanford for 30 years and i feel like wow i really never expected to do any of this i just actually wanted to have a vegetarian restaurant 30 years ago and my PhD and my faculty position and all the grants I've been getting are kind of a mistake. But once I got them, I thought, this is so cool. I never expected to do this and I never expected people to care so little about health. I thought once I did this, they would care. But the most fun I've had in the last 10 years is hooking up with chefs and having them, you know, just say, Hey moron. And it has to taste good and it can like there isn't any reason that it can't they make that's their job they make things unapologetically delicious
1: and in that study they they didn't change the recipe they just changed the name of it to sound more delicious
0: and so let me tell you a little sideline so the reviewers pushed back and they actually said there's some heterogeneity here so there's six schools and the results from one of the schools is an outlier they didn't do quite as well and they actually had to go back and look in detail at what was going on and i don't know the details of exactly how they did this but they they got all the recipes from the different schools and the recipes were not identical from one school to another at each school they had to make their own recipes and they had to follow this pattern Um, stanford now has a website called the edgy veggie toolkit and you can go and see how to name your things and make them more fun but they still need to taste good and so when they went and did a deeper dive into the ingredients and the recipe production approach and in a blinded way handed these out across the different schools a bunch of gastroenterologically knowledgeable people ranked that school's recipes as bad mm. so they like didn't make a great recipe and have three names they made something that wasn't really that tasty and three names, and it didn't matter. Then then it didn't work. It had to taste really good. And then- I'll have be the false advertising. Name. Yeah. <laughs> if
1: it's, you're gonna say it's the, uh, there was one in there, the sizzling Szechuan green beans. Yeah, They'd wanna taste good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it can't be bland. So that's why, yeah, it's been really fun working with people who are on that hedonic side of things. It's food. It means something to people. They have to enjoy it or it's not gonna last. Yeah.
1: What's the the kind of aim of a study like the DISH study? Is that to then start to influence the food environment? You just mentioned there, you have the edgy, edgy veggie edgy toolkit. toolkit. So clearly there's some sort of bigger picture yeah. um, element to this in terms of how you're wanting the results of this kind of study and other studies that you're doing at the community level to start to change the shape of the food environment.
0: Yeah. So, you know, and college-age kids are a great place to start. They don't have their own families yet, but they will. They're not running companies yet, but they will. They might be in charge of whoever's the food vendor for some company. They'll certainly be in charge of their own kids' diets for a while. So if you could change them while they're at school, they've got the rest of their lives. The Stanford Dining folks love to do a math thing of, uh, for every thousand students, this is how many more meals they're going to eat in the rest of their life. As opposed to me, I'm old and decrepit. I don't have that many meals left before I kick off some point. But those 20-year-olds, like they have decades and decades of meals. So if in the dining halls, you could get them to reframe the way they think about food, the way they choose food, and they can't, they can't manipulate them. A term that I like is stealth nutrition. And every once in a while I use it and people say, oh, you're manipulating them and you're hiding things. No, no, no. Actually, I think of stealth nutrition as I'm just bringing in the taste side more or the environment side more. I'm not just, I have a PhD in nutrition science. I'm not just talking about the metabolism. A bunch of people's eyes glaze over when I talk about metabolism. Let's talk about culture and taste and joy and pleasure. And it can be really healthy and good for the environment too. And let's just bring all those things together and be more successful, especially with college students or the community, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think even parents listening to this can, can find the results from that study useful in terms of how they describe their food when they serve it to their kids.
0: Yeah, is this a side or is this- <laughs> Is this just know? broccoli? <laughs> yeah, so one of the terms that the um, menus of change group of chefs use is the protein flip. And the protein flip is that the standard American diet has a big piece of meat in the middle of the plate and it has side dishes. Do you remember the side dishes? No, they're just here's the focus of the plate is the middle, and there's some potato with something on it, and there's it's an some afterthought. steamed veggies, and that might have be been oversteamed. They're a little mushy, but here let's have the pork chop. And the protein flip idea is let's have this um, plant based mixture of uh, heritage grains and some kind of fabulous legume with seared vegetables on top and Moroccan spices. And two ounces of chicken, or two ounces of fish, or f- meat as a condiment, or or meat as the side, and the focus is a sort of global fusion of unapologetically delicious flavors in the middle of the plate. That's plant based. Doesn't have to be vegan or vegetarian. It's just a lot of plants, a lot of fiber, maybe some fermented food, and then the animal products are on the outside or on top, and they just play a less important role. And so the term that I like is this protein. Flip, so most of the protein is coming from the plants, but you're not being exclusionary.
1: Right, and you're doing that with the chefs.
0: Yeah, this is fun, yeah. It's fun to work with them and see their clever ideas. Mm-hmm.
1: You're not only doing the academic writing, I mentioned before that you you have your own book coming out. I now, hope so, soon. It, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we can release the name, that might still be top secret.
0: It's not just top secret, I think it'll just keep yeah, changing. Right. My title was, It Depends, and everybody I talked to said, that sucks. <laughs> and so now it's the discerning eater. It depends. Um, cause, it, Cause it was like, it depends on what? With what, instead of what? And that- People want the black and white. That still is the theme of the book, but the agents looking at it said, that's such a stupid name, it doesn't say what's about it. It needs to say eater or, or something so they know it's food. Yeah.
1: What? So, what? What inspired you to 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 make the jump from academic writing to writing for the general population?
0: So, I'm mostly a researcher at Stanford, but I love to teach, and so I've been teaching human nutrition to human biology undergrads for 21 years, the same class. And every year, they come up and say, Professor Gardner, should I eat fish? Should I eat avocados? Should I have uh, alternative plant milk? Should I have this? And on the first day of class, every year right now, I say, um, you'll get 50% credit right away on this test question if you start with, it depends. And then you tell me with what and instead of what, because then you'll be able to answer the questions for yourself. So basically, in the book, I have a chapter on GMO, organic, plant versus animal proteins, uh, all dairy versus regular dairy. I've got seven eggs is one. I got seven chapters and each one says, this is what the students ask me. And this is an unanswerable question. It's like a black and white. Nutrition's never black and white. It has to go with context. And then I go through and I give some sort of, I think humorous stories and some hardcore metabolism. And I say, here's the explanation for this. And at the end I say, these are better questions. If you ask the question this way in context, you'd find that nutrition isn't very controversial. You, most people would agree, if you framed the question this day, this way, with this context, and if nutrition were less controversial, maybe all would be better critical thinkers, beyond nutrition, mm-hmm. it would help life, too. Yeah. Recognize context how much matters. agreement there is beyond nutrition, but what a great vehicle for teaching critical thinking in the foods we choose.
1: Amen, that's a beautiful message. Uh, There's also a few, uh, in Christopher Gardner fashion, there's a few jokes along the way, Yeah. a few dad jokes. It was um, a funny one that I read at the start of the the egg chapter that you sent over.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have some dad jokes.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll have to uh, make sure we get you back on when that book comes out and we can dig into some of the key learnings.
0: That would be a pleasure.
1: Uh, great to have you back on I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you took the time to come down trek down from San Francisco and nice to to finally do this in person we'll link up to your Twitter which is at Gardner PhD, PhD. yeah where else should we send folks
0: uh, nutrition.stanford.edu yeah uh, we have a website so I have a little YouTube channel okay uh, with quite a few YouTubes uh, and you can get to it If you start there, at one point, you can find the videos elsewhere.
1: Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, it's
0: always a pleasure, but it was really fun to do it in person. Simon, thanks.
1: Yes, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. All
0: right, tremendous.
1: There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.